So recently, I've invited my home congregation of Mountain Vista UU to tweet me reflective questions about the first part of my reflection. We call sermons or what you call a message, we call it a reflection, and I do it in two parts. And so I deliver the first part, and then on certain Sundays, during the musical interlude, they tweet me questions about uh, reflective questions, not uh, other kinds of questions. Uh, uh, Reflective questions about my reflection. And so far we've done it once, and it went, actually it went okay, and we'll do better as we become more accustomed to it. And I'm actually very excited about this because it turns uh, worship, or what we call practice, into a collaborative experience. Um, And there's also some control there so it doesn't become uh, a a debate. Uh, So we turn worship into a collaborative practice, and that's very exciting. Now, I want to make clear here that uh, each of us ministers do things differently. I don't want to set Linda up for, like, why don't you tweet Linda, right? Um, So, uh, and this is brand new to us. I'm hoping that it will work, and so far, so good. But as excited as I am about this, there's another part of me that's really terrified. I mean, there is a, a certain amount of tenderness in a reflection freshly revealed. There's some vulnerability that I have to step into in asking and inviting my congregation to question me about what I just said or to bring their questions about what I just said to me. It'd be nice if every reflection that I offered and every response to their tweeted questions was perfect and airtight, but that ain't happening. (laughs) And we would all be worse for it to pretend to expect that to happen. So I have to be willing to mess up. They have to be willing to grant me some forgiveness. I have to be willing to get it wrong, to miss the mark in front of my congregation and YouTube and therefore everybody. And that's really good. You see, we ministers are supposed to model behavior, right? It wouldn't do for me, uh, for instance, for me to preach non-reactivity, which I often do, and then uh, go berserk when someone turns joys and sorrows into an announcement. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, huh? So authority comes from integrity. And I aim to practice what I preach. So I hope it's not peeling the curtain back too much to reveal that in addition to crafting a more collaborative practice by inviting my congregation to tweet in the moment, what I'm also hoping to do is model courage in the face of vulnerability. 
Now, this reflection was billed as loving the hell out of the world and was supposed to be something justice But it turns out that courage in the face of vulnerability is both precious and essential for cohesive community as well as political and spiritual freedom. Not just our political and spiritual freedom. Justice does not happen without courage in the face of vulnerability. Without courage in the face of vulnerability, love doesn't happen. And justice certainly doesn't happen without love. In Love as the Practice of Freedom author, activist, and feminist Bell Hooks writes that without an ethic of love shaping the direction of our political vision and our radical aspirations, we are often seduced in one way or another into continued allegiance to the systems of domination, imperialism, sexism, racism, and classism. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom and to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. Justice cannot happen without love. And if you think about it, love actually cannot happen without justice. There is a power and balance in relationship. We might have a problem, right? And given that both love and justice require courage in the face of vulnerability, it seems that we have found something to work on, that we have found something to practice. And I need that practice. Because actually outside of the pulpit, I'm not real good at being courageous in the face of my vulnerability. This was really brought home to me a few weeks ago as we were on our way home from a minister's retreat in California. I was in a car uh, with three of the six clergy from the Baja Four congregations and we stopped to refuel. And I went into the little store to get some stuff. And as I returned to the pump area, I, I saw one of my colleagues crouched down at the window of somebody else's car. I thought, hey, neat, we bumped into another car full of ministers. And they're chatting about the retreat. It'll be fun to say hello. But as I got closer, I could see that my colleague was talking to a woman that I certainly didn't know, and I could gather very quickly that he did not know her either. And this woman was bawling. 
she was crying. She was a mother, uh, as evidenced by the child in the car seat in the back. You could imagine what that child must have been going through to see your parent uh, broken and crying. The person who's caring and guarding you. Except for being distraught, this woman did not appear to be desperate. She looked well-fed and well-groomed, and her car was in better shape than neither of my cars. That's a low bar, but still. But as I passed, I heard my colleague say to her, no, that's not true. People do care. And then he stood and offered to pay for some gas for her. So he went into the store to pay for the gas. The woman continued to weep and to wipe tears from her eyes. The little girl in the back seat seemed to be doing better than her mom, but it was breaking my heart that she was witnessing that scene. While my colleague was away, I sat in the car wondering if I should do something too. Should I give the woman some cash? Or shouldn't I at least say something? I am a minister after all, and I think we're supposed to do stuff. (laughs) Or, I thought, would that be overwhelming? to this fragile person? Might she be embarrassed by my additional attention? What a stupid question. It's like the rabbit, afraid to go over to the other side of the hill. Because what what? Because all these excuses that I was coming up with. I mean, the truth is that I was afraid. But why? Why was I afraid? Was I afraid I would lose time or money or energy? Was I afraid of becoming involved? I think it may have had something to do with me being afraid of her pain. But why would I be afraid of her pain? Perhaps it's because I'm afraid of my own. or Perhaps it's because I was afraid that her pain is dangerous in the way that a drowning person is dangerous. In any case, none of this is really logical. I keep trying to find a reason for it, but the reason isn't one that can be arrived at logically because it was not a logical response or a logical dilemma I was in. It was an emotional one, and I was afraid. And that's that. I was hooked by fear. In the end, my only act was to thank my colleague for stepping in where I was too hamstrung to do so. 
Now, my intention in telling this story is not to self-flagellate or to absolve myself by public confession, though if that works, I'll take it. <laughs> now, I tell you this story because I think it demonstrates a condition that is more common than not and one that is at the root of justice work, which is, by the way, always the work of healing. People are afraid. Maybe not you, but the person next to you. We are afraid of the consequences of engaging in justice work. Yes, the danger, the tumult, the possibility of defeat. But we're also afraid of what engagement will cost us in terms of time and energy and our own self-conception. We are afraid of losing the identity that we have manufactured over all this time. We are afraid of what justice work will do to us because we are afraid of the pain we must encounter to do justice work. The pain of others and our own pain. Justice work is going to change you. That is scary. We spend a lot of energy maintaining who we are. And we are afraid of that thing that all religions today seem to promise our own included. We are afraid of transformation. We are afraid, in essence, to actually love. In this way, justice work is as much a work of the spirit, mind, and heart as it is of legislation and adjudication. For example, the consequences of the confluence of race and law enforcement are clear, are deadly, and implicate us as a culture as much as they do those directly involved. The whole culture. After all, these gruesome and unjust killings are carried out mostly within the constraints of the law. Now, to me, this actually does not mean so much that the law needs to change, although it might. But I don't think it's the law that's killing people. It's a mindset that is killing people. And it is one that we participate in. It's a mindset that while honed to a razor's edge by the work that our police do is far and away not the sole province of people working in law enforcement. It is a cultural mindset of domination one that we have inherited over many generations. 
one that is insidious in its ubiquity. It is everywhere, and that means that the first place to find it, the first place to begin working on it, is not in the powers and principalities, but in the mirror. And to do that work takes courage in the face of vulnerability. We, you use, lift up the inherent worth and dignity of all people. But I think we often approach the inherent worth and dignity of all people as something that we acknowledge and recognize, but in a way that it's almost like it's ours to grant. The action becomes, you have inherent worth and dignity when I recognize it, when I grant it when I remember it. But the truth is, affirming and promoting the inherent worth and dignity of all people takes work. We, we act as though it's something that we've always thought and congratulate ourselves for finding a place that lifts it up. It takes work. It's not ours to grant, but ours to discover. To truly see, to truly see one's inherent worth and dignity is not an offhand thing. It requires that we open ourselves to them. It requires us to listen and accept one another, strangers, opponents, on a fundamental level. It requires us to accept ourselves on a fundamental level. And to do that work takes courage in the face of vulnerability. There is risk in love. We know this. There is no justice without love. There is risk in justice-making. And this is a risk we must take for the sake of our world, for the sake of our enemies, our neighbors, our friends, and ourselves. Stepping into risk requires courage in the face of vulnerability. This is why courage in the face of vulnerability is both precious and essential for cohesive community as well as political and spiritual freedom. And we practice this courage together. It may be the reason why we gather in the end. We practice courage in the face of vulnerability together because we practice vulnerability together as a community. So what does this look like? Well, ultimately, and done best, it, I think it looks like listening. I imagine if I could go back in time and just listen to that woman in the car, that that 
would not have fixed all of her problems, certainly. But more than anything else I could have done, it would have affirmed her inherent worth and dignity and opened myself to actually seeing that. Listening is a part of justice work because finally it gets behind the reactivity that we experience and seeks to understand fundamental needs. So, what a wonderful time to practice this, huh? A week or two before the election? (laughs) Our opponents, whoever they may be, have fundamental needs, have inherent worth and dignity. The oppressed, the oppressors, have fundamental needs and inherent dignity, and listening gets behind our own reactivity. I mean, listen to what folks say, but also while listening, we can seek to understand the more fundamental desires and and needs. I'm a parent of five-year-olds, and when they're freaking out, I could try addressing everything that they're freaking out about, but half the time, that is not the issue. There is a fundamental need. For them, it's sleep or food or a hug, you know? So this may be a little different, although you might offer a political opponent, you know, a donut. I don't know. Or a nap. That might be weird. Um, but there are fundamental needs, fears that people are operating politically with that we can hear. And when we start hearing each other's fears, we're on to something. See, listening circumvents oppositional politics and gets to the core of what humans are. It's a practice that benefits the other as well as yourself. True listening requires that you quiet your mind. You can't listen truly to somebody if you're reviewing the tape of the day or uh, rehearsing what you're going to say in response. True listening gets us out of that monkey mind that we maybe witnessed a little bit in our meditation today. It gets us into a place of non-reactivity, of empathy, and connection. And that is a powerful place to be. So there's an author and theologian named David Augsburger. He said that being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. When we really listen to someone, we place all of our attention on them. And when we place all of our attention on a person without getting in the way, something magical happens. It opens a channel between you. And guess what? That takes courage because you are then in a vulnerable place. How do I know that? Because I was afraid to listen. But I can do better. 
I'm called to do better by my vocation and by my faith. It helps to practice. Now, we actually do practice this art every Sunday when we gather, particularly in joys and sorrows, formally, formally in joys and sorrows, and also in you listening to the reflections of your minister. And we practice this in many informal ways in our congregational interactions. Because we are practiced at it here, we may be, maybe, if we do it with intention, we may have the opportunity to be more adept at practicing it beyond our walls. Let this faith call you into this art. Let it remind you or alert you to notice it when we do not do it. Let it alert you as it alerted me. when I did not do what I needed to do so that the next time I will do what needs to be done.